Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Ever get fixated on something you knew wasn't good for you? Or held on to something that was broken that you knew couldn't be fixed? And I'm not talking something sentimental, you know, something from a family heirloom. 25 years ago, someone broke into the parsonage and stole a bunch of stuff. As the police were taking the report, I told them one of the items was an air conditioner. Now, it was a hot, humid day, and the officer said, wish you still had it. We could use the cool air. And I said, well, actually, it was an air conditioner that shorted out and almost started a fire. And the officer looked at me, and he says, then why did you still have it? And I didn't have an answer for him. So God's got this. I have often repeated that phrase over and over again to myself, especially during these broken times that we are living in. Sometimes it was a question. Sometimes it was a definitive statement of fact. Sometimes, to be honest, it was an outright prayer of desperation. But it was always spoken in faith. During COVID, you know, when we had a little more time because there were things we weren't allowed to do, I did a survey of what the media calls news. I evaluated online platforms, social media, Facebook, Twitter, and TV. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not someone who, you know, is schooled in this. Um, But what I discovered was that only about 20%, a little bit more maybe, sometimes a little less, was actual news. The rest was advertisements, sometimes disguised as news. Gossip, in other words, somebody just giving them own thoughts about it, editorials, and talking heads that were repeating things that had been repeated ad nauseum. Much of it was designed to make us afraid. Sometimes it offered us a solution. So are you worried? For only $19.95, we'll break it up into two payments and we'll include a Ginzu knife. Sometimes, though, they just left us like an addict waiting for our next fix of terrible news, keeping us afraid. I discovered obvious factual errors. I don't mean little ones. I mean like huge ones that somebody should have pointed out. Bad grammar, pictures that were especially just misleading, and stories that were so biased that it was tragic. I started reading the news the same way that I read the comic strips at that time because I realized that, to be honest, sometimes they were about the same. So a few weeks ago, I redid my survey and discovered that it's a little more than 20%, but not much. And so it wasn't COVID that changed the way the news was presented. The good news is the world is not nearly as bad as the media says it is. The bad news is, well, the world is actually a lot worse than the media says it is. But what you need to know is that God's got this, and God's got you, which is why it doesn't matter what the news or the social media says, because there's a bigger reality than anything that they understand. This past week, my computer almost melted because of the emotions, pain, anguish, hurt, hatred, and a hundred other verbs that were expressed on social media and supposed news articles because of the elections. Add in the abortion debate, North Korean threats, economic sanctions, sports, and Catherine K. Aloha finally telling us who actually stole her mailbox. Um, It's amazing we still have a country. 
And it, and it didn't seem to matter what side you were on. You lost, at least according to the media, which is why I'm thankful that God's got this and God's got us. As I scanned the media and news posts this week, I thought about what needed to be said. Zechariah 9.10 says, God will speak peace to the nations. I think for now it's enough to speak peace to you, the unique and unreproducible miracles of our Savior, and let you go out and speak peace to your families, your neighbors, and people that you work with, who you know also need some peace. In today's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples they're going to get to tell their testimony to kings and, and all sorts of famous individuals. Now, that sounds really exciting, but, but it's kind of like telling your puppy, I'm going to take you to the vet to get fixed. Um, there's something lost in the translation. So do you have an elevator speech? An elevator speech lasts only 20 to 30 seconds, the amount of time it takes to get from one floor to the next. This isn't a, how about them bows, or um, what do you think of the weather? This is something very important that you don't just want to share, but you feel you need to share. But you know the other person isn't necessarily interested, and so you're going to have to be, well, concise, on point, and on time, because otherwise they're liable to walk off the elevator before you get to the important thing. If someone asked, why are you a Christian? Could you summarize it in just 20 to 30 seconds? Just think about that for a second. Something like, I'm a follower of Jesus because he gives my life meaning and purpose. He gives me peace during chaos and the unknowns of the constant challenges to my life. He gives me a compass to help make good decisions by. And he reminds me, that my death is not the end of life. Now, that one's about 20 seconds long, unless I've had too much caffeine, and then it drops down to about 12 seconds. Now, an elevator speech is not a doctoral dissertation on the whole Bible. It is certainly not a sermon. It's not your life story. It's just three or four things that Jesus does for you. Some of the simplest elevator speeches I've ever heard were, Jesus gives me a reason to get up in the morning. Jesus got me through some of the toughest times in my life. I love knowing that I don't have to make the journey through this life and this world alone. How many times have you told someone, look, look, I just got five minutes. I'll, I'll give you five minutes, but no more. But then like an hour or an hour and a half later, you're still there with them. Now, why? Because you discovered whatever was happening, whatever they were saying was worth more than just five minutes of your life. So when people ask, why are you a Christian? They may or may not actually want to know. They might be trying to be polite, um, but once in a while, they hear something in your voice, a confidence that catches their attention, and they step back into the elevator, elevator and they say, tell me more. In the Old Testament, when God called the prophet Jeremiah, he said, when you speak all these things to them, they will not listen to you. When you call them, they will not answer you. And then God said, but you have to go anyway. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, and I think you can tell from what I just said why he got that moniker. He knew almost no one he spoke to was going to listen. Most of them were going to reject God's word, but he went anyway. Jesus tells his disciples the world is upside down. They have turned against God. They are wholly consumed by themselves, which is why they have been called to testify to the world about God's grace and love and mercy. 
but because of their testimony before kings and Caesars and, to be honest, even ordinary people, some of them will be put to death. All of them are going to suffer. And when it's all said and done, only a few people will have listened. But still they must go and remain faithful. And as Paul said, through their endurance, they will gain their lives. Testimonies aren't really a thing in the Lutheran church. But back when I was a Baptist growing up, everybody had to have a testimony. We even practiced ours in Sunday school. It had to be compelling. It had to have lots of inflections uh, and holy words and a proper amount of sin that was conquered in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, was at least three syllables and as many as five syllables for the really talented Sunday nights were prayer meetings at Holly Hills and Calvary, and often professionals were brought in to tell their professional stories, highly polished, well-rehearsed testimonies of God's work in their life. They were in the pit of despair. Sin had taken over their life. A recounting of at least three or four of the seven deadly sins were given in detail. Then came the sinner's prayer, and Jesus delivered them, and they stood before us washed in the blood of the Lamb and sanctified by the Spirit. The offering plate was then passed so that they could continue to tell their testimony to many others that needed to hear it and be inspired by God's work. They were great, but then came scandals. Turns out some of them had never gone through the dark times that they claimed they had. Instead of the gutters of East L.A., they were raised in the suburbs of Orange County. Instead of gang members, they were homecoming kings. There was no life of drugs, unless you count all the caffeine in their specialty coffees. They tried to excuse it as, you know, it's no harm done. It was simply meant to be a Christian drama to inspire people to give their lives to Jesus. But instead, we began to question everyone's testimony. Jesus, strangely enough, tells his disciples not to prepare an elevator speech or even rehearse a moving testimony. He tells them he will give them what they need when the time comes. And I want you to note, he says, not just words, but a wisdom that your enemies will not be able to argue against. In the verse immediately before our text, the disciples were watching the rich walk into the temple and put those huge offering checks in the plate. And then a priest would escort them to the VIP area where they were properly thanked for all of their generosity. And they're watching this parade. And then comes this old woman. And she puts a coin that's worth barely a penny into the offering plate. And Jesus says, now that's an offering. She gave more than all the others combined. And the disciples look at Jesus like, are you really that bad at math? Or is your eyesight going, did you not see what she put in the plate? And Jesus said, look, All the rest of them, they gave out of their riches, and their gift is accepted, and their gift is necessary. But this woman gave everything she had. She literally put her entire life into the hands of God. When we start looking at this, the prophet Micah then said, Mankind, God has told you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with your God. When you read that verse, do you see how God gave this woman a wisdom that no one could argue against? Anyone who was watching 
they would have seen exactly what God needed them to see, that there are still people in this world who completely and totally trust Him with every aspect of their life. Jesus tells His disciples their life is their testimony to the world, and it may cost them their lives. Now, He might be exaggerating a little bit when He says, everyone is going to hate you because of my name, but not my much. To live a life of faith, to point to God as creator, redeemer, sanctifier, to live with one foot planted firmly in this world and one foot firmly planted in heaven, that is to live in the tension of the holy almost, which is something that the world does not understand and does not want to accept. Now, before you start to think Jesus doesn't care if the disciples live or die, or worse yet, is setting them up for martyrdom in order for them to prove just how much they trust him, think of it this way. We are all going to die. There is no other way off this third rock from the sun. It's not like if the disciples just remain silent about their faith that they aren't going to die. No, they're going to die, no matter what happens. The question is, will their death mean something? Martin Luther King Jr. said, If a man hasn't discovered something he will die for, he isn't fit to live. Can I get an amen for that? What are you willing to die for? What is so important beyond yourself that you would freely lay down your life so that it could continue? Questions we should ask. In the first chapter of Luke, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Actually, what the angel meant was, the Lord is inside you. God had quietly slipped into skin and bones. He now had a mouth, eyes, and feet. And in nine months, he was going to get born into a broken, sinful world. Now, why would God do such a thing? Why would an infinite, perfect, eternal God limit himself to this thing we call humanity? And it's because you were worth dying for. You were worth dying for. God was willing to give his life away so that you could live. But before he could die for you, he had to get born and live for you. Jesus warned his disciples their testimony would not be well received by the world. And and because God will never ask us to do anything that he hasn't done, immediately following our gospel text, Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate testifies to the truth. You know that famous saying where Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus stands there with his hands out going, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. His testimony results in him being tortured, nailed to a cross, and killed. But not before the crowd that gathered to watch him die hears him pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's that old joke about the wife who says to her husband, Honey, you're always saying that you would die for me, but you never do it. Jesus doesn't just say he will die for us. He actually does it. Remember Martin Luther King Jr.'s words? If a man hasn't discovered something he will die for, he isn't fit to live. That is the amen. So where does that leave us? Well, as you read the social media posts, Facebook pages, tweets, listen or watch the news, just remember... No matter what you see and hear, God's got this, and God's got you. 
You got born, so life really isn't an option, it's a reality, so live it. You're gonna die, except it's gonna happen someday, but, but you don't have to be in a big hurry, so live until you don't. Set out to discover what you are willing to die for, something that is bigger and more holy than you, and, and especially that it is worth literally more than you adding simply a few more years to your life. And then let your life, however many years it is, become your testimony. You have been set free by the one who lived and died to bring all of us hope, peace, and forever. Jesus set you free to testify to your neighbor, to your family, to your community, to your world, Big deep breath, and even your enemies. The prophet Micah says your testimony is simple. Act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. On this side of heaven, it is our calling to speak from our hearts through our hands, our feet, and our voices. We bear witness to and live out and toward and by the story of Jesus. In truth, the truest and most faithful story is nothing that we dream up, practice, or do. And we don't need to add any more syllables to the name of Jesus. The truest and faithful story is the one that Jesus lives out in us. So that just as St. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Our elevator speech is as simple as, I can't imagine a life without Jesus. And when our testimony is also our life, and the two are so intertwined they cannot be separated, then it matters not whether we are alive on earth or alive in heaven. For finally, we are able to live now and forever in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.